Okay, we are going to start in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And we are continuing along the chronological life of Jesus. And we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 11, verse 29. And again, we're in the last five months of Jesus' life. And uh, things begin to, to really ramp up here. So in Luke chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say... This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it, but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, you will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines with its rays. So Jesus starts out in this passage in verse 29 and what Jesus does is he starts to, to speak and he's speaking about this gener- that generation in particular. We had seen the, seen the same sort of pattern when he had proclaimed on them the unpardonable sin on that particular generation. And he's saying that particular generation is particularly wicked because he had demonstrated all these works to them, and yet they were denying him. And he goes on to say, he says that they're asking for a sign because right above that we read last week that they were asking for a sign from heaven. And Jesus had given them many, many miracles. And still they were asking for a sign from heaven. And so he says, no more signs will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And he ex- had explained that formerly. A year, year and a half earlier, he ex- had explained that. He said that the sign of Jonah is this. That just as Jonah was in the belly of a sea creature for three days, and then he came out as a testimony to Nineveh. You're going to see that the Son of Man will be in, in the heart of the earth for three days. And then will come forth. So this is the sign of resurrection. The only sign left that they were going to get as a generation was the sign of resurrection. They were going to get that sign. The sign of resurrection was going to be given. And, and in fact, the, uh, uh, um, so they were going to see the sign of resurrection, in fact, a couple of times. So there was the, the resurrection of Lazarus, and, and they'll also see the resurrection of Jesus. And then he says, the Queen of the South, in verse 31, is going to come up. It says, the Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. So who's the Queen of the South? That's the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon. You read in the Old Testament, and she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and she was greatly impacted by this. And it says that these Gentiles, the people of Nineveh, and the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will testify at the judgment against that generation. So think about that. Think about what that means. 
that generation one day is going to stand before the judgment seat of God, like all of us. But for the people of that generation, then rising up will be the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South. Rising up will be the people at Nineveh, from Nineveh, who had repented the, the preaching of Jonah. And they will stand and accuse that generation at the judgment seat. That's what Jesus says. This whole portion, we could label it in your face portion. Jesus is very much, he is just on fire proclaiming what is going to happen to them at the judgment. And he's speaking this, and you think that, uh, uh, you know, they, they must have been getting singed by this time as Jesus was preaching to them. And then he says in verse 33, he says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket. The last time he had used the same analogy, he spoke of it as the light that is in you. And he spoke that it has to shine. And now he could be speaking that. He could also be speaking that he is going to be crucified before all of them. The testimony is going to be there. And then he tells us, he says, uh, he says in verse 34, The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light that is in you is not darkness. Be careful what you do with your eyes. Be careful what you look at. There are places that you don't want to go because you don't want that stuff filling your eyes. Jesus said the lamp of the body is your eye. If you fill it with darkness, your body is going to be full of darkness. And this is why again and again we have to continue to testify that if you are caught up with pornography and addicted to pornography, you have to pray, God, help me. God, help me. I'm not judging anybody. I've talked about my past many times. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying that if we fill our eyes with darkness, there is darkness that's going to fill our lives. And this is why we want to strive against this. It's not, oh, well, it's okay, you know. And if you think that when you get married, you'll be done with the pornography, that's not the case. You begin to deal with it now, or you will carry it into your marriage Jesus said, be careful what you look at. He says, if, if you look upon a woman to lust after her. In, the, in Matthew, he says this, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. So he talks about the look of the eye. It's very specific. Be careful what you fill your mind with. Now, he blasts this generation, the multitude that he was speaking with. And now he's going to hit the Pharisees in particular. So among the multitudes, now he's going to focus in right on the Pharisees. Now look in verse 37. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. So it starts out really calm. The Pharisee asked him over for lunch. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good deed. You know, if, if Jesus were here, I'd ask him over for lunch. You know, come on, join us. And so he asked him over for lunch, and it says in verse 38... When the Pharisee, I'm sorry, uh, um, in verse 38, when the Pharisee saw, saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Okay, so the Pharisee sees Jesus reclining at the table about to eat, but he had not ceremonially washed. There was no commandment in the law of Moses that said that they had to wash their hands before they ate. 
Why not? I don't know. There's a lot of 613 commandments there. That's not one of them. But it was in their tradition. Remember, around each one of these 613 commandments, they had sometimes hundreds and in some cases even thousands of rules surrounding each one of those that Jesus categorically refused to abide by. He would abide and fulfill everything in the law of Moses, but nothing in the traditions of men, which is what is written in their Mishnah to this day. But since the deportation of Babylon, when they came back in about 600 B.C., the Mishnah started being writing, written, and the writings occurred right on through the first century into the second and third century. And that's what remain with us today. And he refused to do that. If you go to a... To a uh, to an Orthodox restaurant, an Orthodox Jewish restaurant in Israel, or even in New York City, you will find this. There is a washing area that's separate from the restrooms, and the people will go there, and they'll wash their hands, and they roll up their sleeves, and you have to wash from the tip of your finger to your elbow. That's what it says in the rules. Very specific. And I've gone out to dinner with, 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 uh, uh, with religious Jews in Israel, and they'll go over to this area, and they'll start washing themselves up. So they were surprised that Jesus didn't do this, because they thought Jesus should, should do this. The man never said anything, the Pharisee never said anything, but Jesus acts upon just what the man is thinking. So the man is surprised that Jesus doesn't ceremonially wash, and so he says in verse 39, But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of it you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. I mean, this is, this is in the man's house. So this feeling that if you testify of Jesus and somebody gets offended, oh, that's the worst thing that you could do. You offended somebody. That seemed not to bother Jesus. I mean, Jesus just spoke the word. Remember, this is the in-your-face portion. He spoke the scriptures. He spoke the truth. He said, you clean the outside, but inside you're full of wickedness and robbery. I mean, all I did was think about why you didn't wash your hands. Jesus is really giving it to him. He calls them foolish ones. He said, those who made the outside made the inside as well. He says, God cares about what's inside you. Not just about what's on the outside. He cares about what's inside you. Verse 42, But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithes of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, Pharisees tithed on everything. Everything. They religiously tithed on everything. He says to them, you even pay tithe on your mint, your rue, on every kind of herb. Every time you pick up garden herbs, you tithe on it. He says, but you've forgotten that God cares about what's inside too. He says, but these things you should have done without neglecting the former. He says, you've disregarded justice and the love of God. He cares about justice and the love of God. So even if I tithe, that in itself is not sufficient. It's what's in my heart. As well. But then he says, you should have done these things without neglecting the others. In other words, your tithing was good. You can't say, oh, well, okay, I'll have justice in the love of God. Now I don't have to tithe. No, Jesus said, you should do this without neglecting the others. 
You've got to do both. Jesus holds them to a standard that it's not merely your tithing. It's your attitude in your tithing. It's your heart in your tithing. It's not like, okay, I'll put my money in here. No, it's not like that. It's, Lord, this is yours. This is yours. And it's not because the church needs your money or needs your five dollars. It's what that giving of that five dollars or that tithe or whatever it is does for you. It teaches you to be less selfish. It teaches you to be giving. It's not because the church is like, whoa, all these college students come in and we're going to make a killing on their tithe. (laughs) That is not the case from this class. Trust me. But it's what it does for you. You say, well, I don't make any money. Do you, well, what do you get? What do you get? You get $100 a month or something? You get $50 a month? If it's $50 a month, that's $5 a month. That's what it is. You give something. And it does something in your own heart. Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. I mean, remember, all the guy did was think, why doesn't he wash his hands according to our tradition? He says, woe to you Pharisees. You love to sit at the chief seats in these respectful greetings like, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Pharisee. You love these respectful greetings. As you start coming up in life and you go from being a, you know, like a lowly freshman to a senior, just remember who you are in God's eyes. We're all lost. One day when you move up in a, in a place, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen it where you, when you start working someplace, that, that uh, the people who are there kind of look down on you and a new person. Just remember, just remember to reach out to these people. Remember, you're not so great because you've been there three weeks longer than the other person. When you start moving up and you become CEO and COO of these companies, remember from where you came. You're just a regular person saved by the grace of God. Jesus said to them, you are like concealed tombs. Formerly, he had proclaimed over them, you are like whitewashed tombs. In other words, you're clean on the outside, but inside you're, you're full of dead men's bones. Here he says, you're like concealed tombs, and people who walk over them are unaware of it. In other words, you're like these concealed tombs with all this junk growing on. People don't even know that inside, there's just un- underneath here, there's all these dead bodies. He says, That's what you're really like inside. Now, you'd think this would be enough. Jesus would really just was really in their face, right? Verse 45. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Okay, so this is one of the scholars of the law. These are the rabbinic scholars, the ones who, first of all, knew the law of Moses very, very well. They could recite the 613 commandments. They also knew the Mishnah very well. These hundreds and thousands of regulations, for example, around the Sabbath day, there are over 1,000 rules of things you should should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath day. You go to Israel to this day, an Orthodox Jew on the Sabbath day cannot push the button for the elevator. 
That's work. And that's one of their rules. They cannot push that button. And, 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 uh, uh, but a Gentile could push the button for them. That's okay. There's all of these rules. And you go there, you see these rules. There's over, over 1,000 rules for the Sabbath day. God gave a commandment that they shouldn't work on the Sabbath. There's over 1,000 rules that they put around that. So, he's one of the, those lawyers. So, this lawyer says to him, you know, when you say this to the Pharisees, when you say this, you insult us too. So, Jesus didn't go, I, I am so sorry. You know, that was not my intent. And it's not even offense. Offense is bad. Insult is even worse. Insult is like a direct, you know, a direct blow. Whereas an offense is, you know, I, I kind of swerved into you. I didn't mean to mean it. So here's Jesus' reply to this lawyer in verse 46. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs. Sorry, I got mixed up here. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not touch it, one of the burdens with your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God has said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some they will kill, and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the keys of knowledge, and you yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. Okay, so he really blasted this lawyer. He said to the lawyers, you, you are responsible for the death of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. They're, the order of their Old Testament, they have the same books in the Old Testament. Our Old Testament is their Tanakh. That's their Bible. The order of their books is different. They start with Genesis, but their last book is Second Chronicles. The last one to die in Second Chronicles was Zechariah. The first one to die, the first prophet to die in Genesis was Abel. So, so he says from Abel to Zechariah, as we might say, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing. You're responsible for all the deaths. Me? I wasn't even alive then. You are responsible for all the death. All those deaths. I mean, Jesus said, on this generation, because they all spoke of the Messiah coming. And they have denied the Messiah who came. That's what Jesus said to them. Now, it's, it's one thing to hear this all about all the people who, who, who uh, uh, got blasted for their sins. Now, let me tell you what happens to us. So now, now, 
Now what we do is we look at the Scriptures, we look at the context in which it was said, the times of the Scriptures, and then we say, Lord, now speak to me. What does this Scripture mean to me? Well, here's some things that it might mean to us. Have you ever been in church and the pastor said something that bothered you? Good. That's the way it should be. Have you ever been offended? Good. That's the way it should be. The Word of God penetrates into our lives. And if the Word of God can't speak into our lives to turn us from our wicked ways, then what will? Then what will? This attitude, oh, that pastor, what he said offended me. I think I'll just go to another church. The problem with that is this, is that the problem has not been dealt with in your life. If that is a real thing, that the Scripture calls us to. Now, I'm not for pastors preaching things and putting things upon people that are not in the Scriptures. So if something's not in the Scriptures, challenge me with it. Come up to me afterward. We'll talk about it. I'll show you where I got it. And if I didn't, I will apologize. Because I put nothing upon you that's not itself in the Scriptures. So Jesus blasted this, law- this lawyer and the Pharisees for... for um, for their sins, and He blasts us. The Word of God does the same thing in our lives. If the Word of God can't speak into our lives, then who will? What will? A person came to me yesterday, and I was counseling with them, and, and they wanted to participate in a practice, and I showed them clearly from the Scriptures, it was wrong. And they said, well, will it someday be right? And I said, if the Bible changes... But I don't think it's going to change. Culture may change. Culture may accept that. But the Scriptures won't change. And that's what we're held to. Look in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy, so you go over several books and, and uh, uh, you'll hit 2 Timothy, which is before Hebrews. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every good work. Jesus comes in and He just singes the Pharisees and the lawyers. And just before that, He singed the masses with the fire of rebuke. And we can look at that and say, oh, that's nice. Go get them, Lord. Give it to them. The Lord speaks into our lives the same way. If you don't read the Bible and open it up and start reading, go, "Uh uh-oh, then you're blind. Because the Word of God speaks into our lives of what is right and what is wrong. And we are sinners in need of correction. The Scriptures say, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. You know what reproof is? Reproof is correction. That's wrong. Don't do it. That's reproof. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is how we're taught what is right. Because of this book. I read this book every single day. Every day. I start in Genesis chapter 1, and I pick up where I left off the day before, and I, when I'm finished through Revelation chapter 22, I start again. I want to miss nothing. And every time I go through this, I've been doing this for over 30 years, 
Every time I go through this, the Lord speaks to me again and reminds me and teaches me new things. You are not done learning. We are not done learning. If the Word of God brings offense, great! That's what it's supposed to do. Worry if you're not offended. Worry if you're really reading. He says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is how we are built up. How does God communicate? Oh, well, you know, He just speaks to my heart. He does. He speaks to your heart. But you know, our hearts are fickle. We don't really know what God's voice is. Sometimes you turn around a corner and you've got to find a parking space. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. So is God, have I, have, have I heard, is God wrong? No, God's right. My mind is wrong. This Word of God can keep you in tune with what's needed. Turn over a few, few chapters in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is what he is preaching, he's speaking to Timothy, a young pastor. This is what he tells Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So you, you, you see what, what it says. That, that um, It says in verse 3, For time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. If ever I stop preaching what the Word of God says, then worry. Don't worry if I'm preaching the Word of God. Worry if I stop preaching it. You can find churches where you will never be confronted in a way that's offensive to you. But if you want reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, you will get it in a church that preaches the Bible because that's what it calls us to. Look over in uh, Proverbs. Proverbs chapter chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Uh, Could you have been a little bit more clear? Whoever hates reproof is stupid. God calls us to a life of correction. God calls us to this. Turn turn back to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I moved into a discipleship house in my junior year of college. So I, I got saved in my freshman year. At the end of my, my sophomore year, I moved into a house uh, uh, with nine other Christian guys. And it was a discipleship program that was associated with a, with a campus church there. And uh, uh, so I lived with these nine guys. And I was just a regular guy. I wasn't particularly sinful. I wasn't particularly nonsense. I was just a regular guy. And I moved in this house. And... and from day one, you know, I thought I was, I was doing a good job. I thought I was helping out. So they, they, they had dinner together, and after dinner, people are, you know, you know, helping out and doing dishes. And I thought, you know, I'll help too. And I, I took all the silverware that it had been dried, and I dumped it in the drawer. The guy said, what are you doing? So I'm putting the silverware in the drawer. He said, you just dumped it in. I said, yeah, it's in there. 
He said, no, the spoons go here, the forks go here, the knives go here. He said, well, what's the difference? It's there. You just look, you'll see it. Take it. And... He said, that's not the way we do it here. Everything has its proper place. That was day one of constant correction. Constant correction. Finally, I went to my roommate and I said, you know, this is getting a bit much. It's like, everything I do is wrong. And he didn't say, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm really sorry. I just kind of overdid it with you. He, he opened up to Proverbs 6, verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. That's what he told me. Reproofs for di- discipline are the way of life. Okay. <laughs> and you're never done. You're never done. You'd think that... You know, after all these years, I know everything not to do. No. I get corrected, and I need to be in a place of correction. Did you know that one of the things that happens is sometimes you get to a place and you miss having people speak correction into your life. I have gone to some of my senior colleagues that are believers that I really honor. So, for example, Frank Jones, who's a, who's a math professor in his 70s, who's walked with God his whole life. And I said, would you speak into my life? I mean, when you see me doing something wrong, tell me. I want to know. He said, okay. He's never said anything. <laughs> but God gave me a wife. She makes up for that. <laughs> She's there to help me with all of these things. And, and so, you know, relish the time that you have people speaking into your life. It is a good thing. Jesus spoke into the lives of people. If they had only responded, they would have been fine. Learn how to take the Word of God and have it just speak into your life. Say, Lord, speak into my life through this passage. As I read today, Lord, what is it you have for me? And let the Word of God begin to speak into your life. And if you get offended in church, don't walk out in a fuss. That's what it's about. Remember, he said, when you do this, you, you not only offend us, you insult us. Jesus said, okay, take this. And he really gave it to him. So maybe you'll be insulted one day in church. Don't give up. It's just like a family. You know, you, you'll, get, you'll get insulted in a family. Kids will get insulted by their parents. And they'll be embarrassed because of their parents. Parents will be embarrassed for the things that their kids do. Trust me, that happens, you know. But you don't give up on them. Because it's a family. It's the same in the body of Christ. You don't give up on them just because these things arise. This is instruction. This is training. This is teaching in righteousness. This is how we become the man of God becomes equipped. How did he get to be such a man of God? A life of reproof. That's what it says. Correction, teaching, training in righteousness. That's how the man of God is equipped. This is what he's called us to. Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank you so much for your mercies. Thank you for your grace that you do not stop speaking into our lives through the words of Jesus and through the words of Scripture. And I pray for these young people that they would put aside any offense and say, Father, teach me. That they would allow their eyes and their hearts to be open to instruction from the Word of God. 
Father, thank You for this never-changing Word of God that holds us to a standard regardless of where the culture is going. Father, I pray that as these young people see a changing culture, that they would hold fast to the Word of God and not change. Father, I pray that their eyes would be opened and their hearts would be open to make this Word their daily meditation, that they could learn from the Word of God and be trained and be taught. Father, I pray for Your grace to be upon them. Keep them close to Jesus. Have mercy on their souls. And Father, do the confirming work of the Holy Spirit, I pray. Unless You confirm this Word to their hearts, the teaching is in vain. The study is in vain. Father, draw them close to Jesus. And I commit them to You. Amen.